Yeah, we're glad that you're here. We're in a unique little situation as a church because we're about to start some new stuff going into the summer, a new series we're gonna be launching in the summer. It's gonna start on the 15th of May. And so we're, we're kind of in the middle of a couple of things, right? We're coming off of Easter and we, uh, we're stepping into some new series that we're gonna be working through in the summer. And so when that happens, I tend to just really preach the things that God's laying on my heart, things that he's doing in me. And so actually that's really kind of what I do anyway is as we study these things, I just kind of regurgitate what the Holy Spirit is teaching my heart, my own failures, my own kind of shortcomings and how God is leading or instructing or convicting me and all the ways in which I've fallen short and he continues to show grace. It just sort of comes out in what we teach and walk through. And, and this couple of weeks is really no different. Last week we looked at the life of Stephen, the first martyr. If you were here um, and on that marathon Sunday or you weren't running the 26th, then, then you might remember that we talked about Stephen in terms of his just passionate knowledge and depth of, of a relationship with the Lord. And we talked about how a lot of us, our deepest goal in life for our Christian life is really just to honor God. We want to honor God with our actions, with our words. We want to be obedient. We want him to shine through us or pour through us. And, and that's noble and great. But when we look at someone like Stephen, we realize that there's so much more to this Christian life. And we explored Stephen's last words as he was literally having rocks and stones heaped upon his head as he's dying. And he cries out to the to Father God. He says, receive my spirit and, and do not hold this sin against him. And we talked about how passionately Stephen's heartbeat was for the Lord and that he knew Jesus that literally God had given him these glimpses into heaven and we explored the, the last words of Christ and Stephen's last words and they were almost exactly the same. Jesus on the cross says, Father, you know, into your hands I commit my spirit. He takes his breath and right before he dies, he essentially says, do not hold these men's sins against him. And Stephen does essentially the same thing. And so we started talking about what it means to truly know God. To know God both in life and death. And we explored Paul's words in Philippians where he talks about the idea that we're created literally to know him, Right? to have the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, is so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. And Paul's declaring, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. All that coming on looking at how Stephen lived and how Stephen died and how deeply we are called to know and follow the Lord. And so at the end of that chapter in Acts, in chapter 7, we go right into verse eight or chapter 8, verse 1. And it says, standing there, right, at the, at the death of Stephen, giving his approval, was Saul. And that's how chapter 7 and chapter 8 actually begin, because then this massive persecution breaks out, and all the religious kind of Christian leaders are scattered amongst the area, thrown into Samaria and all kinds of places around the Judean countryside, because the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jewish uh, kind of culture want them spread out. They don't want this Christianity to take hold, and they're afraid the stoning of Stephen was going to cause this uprise of people saying, we're going to now be more energized to follow the Lord. And so that moment when Stephen was killed, they scattered and a persecution broke out. And leading that persecution was Saul, who we, of course, know as Paul. Same guy, Saul and Paul, not a new name. Uh, it's basically different styles of it in Greek and whatnot, but it's the same person. So we'll go back and forth between Saul and Paul. We mean the exact same person. Standing there is Paul giving his approval of Stephen's death, and the people were laying their cloaks at his feet. So as they're heaving rocks upon Stephen, killing him, literally bashing his brains in, sadly as that sounds, they're laying their cloaks at Saul's feet, essentially saying, we honor you. You're in charge. Now, why is that? Who is this guy that is getting all this recognition? Well, obviously, we know him as Paul, right? Writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, and perhaps outside of Jesus, the most important person in all of Christian history, right? 
God is using him essentially to take the gospel of the Gentiles and, to the, to the, and into the city of Jerusalem. Christianity explodes at Paul's hand, and God does some amazing things. But before all that happens, we have Saul standing at the death of Stephen and being honored by his murderers. So I started thinking, man, it's a fascinating story, right, of Saul. How do you go from that guy to the guy that we know and read about? What journey does that look like? And so what I thought we'd do this morning is we'd, we'd piggyback off our uh, kind of a exploration of Stephen and step into the exploration of, of Paul. And we're going to be jumping into Acts 9, just two chapters ahead of where we were. I'm looking at that story because... We're going to be introduced into a couple of characters. We're going to be introduced to, to Saul and his story and what God is doing in his life and the plans that Saul actually has for himself versus what God is doing. And we're going to be introduced to this other character named Ananias, who's a little less known but also has an equally important role in God's sort of redemptive plan. So before we open up God's word and dive into the details of these stories, let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll ask God just to teach our hearts this morning. And then hopefully what is somewhat familiar in these stories will uh, God will use to to just convict us and move in us and draw us into his presence. But let's take a moment and let's just pray. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to worship you, the privilege that it is to gather together as community and to worship you, the one true God. Uh, Lord, we take it for granted, but we are so blessed with the opportunity to worship together. We recognize that there are believers, brothers and sisters all over the world that don't get this luxury, that are huddled together in small places that are afraid for their very lives because of things like persecution that are still happening around the world, things that are happening at the hands of people like Saul, who want to see Christians eradicated from the face of the earth, who are threatened by their very existence and by the gospel that they propagate. And so, Lord, we're reminded today as we talk a little bit about persecution that there are believers around the world that, uh, Lord, that are, are fearing for their lives. And, uh, Lord, we're worried about whether or not we're going to run out of donuts. It just is a heartbreaker. But it's true. It's true. And so we want, to, we want to be united with those believers in spirit, Lord. And so we pray for them. We pray for the churches up and down our street, whether we agree with everything about them or not, Lord. We do want to see the gospel made known. So we pray for the churches in our city and around the world, Lord. We ask that you would knit us together through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity just to gather and to worship. We know that you're going to teach us through your word, Lord. We, we claim that. We believe it. Your word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. You tell us that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Therefore, an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take it lightly. It is not a guidebook or a suggestion manual. It is your very word of life, the breath of God, the theopunestos. It is the, the person of God poured out into these words. And so, Lord, we honor them. And we ask you to teach us through them. Take a moment in your own heart as you sit here this morning, even if you're here with us for the first time, just, just take a moment in the stillness of your heart and ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. Whatever it is that he wants to do in you, just say, Lord, teach my heart. Just pray that God would teach you. Take a moment and pray for somebody around you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. I say this every single time that everything that happens up here on a Sunday morning or here on a Sunday morning is really about you. Care about the spiritual movement in the lives of people around you. Pray for your wife or your husband or your children or even if you're, you don't have those with you or you're not, you're single, pray for someone in front of you or behind you or just the, the person next to you or just even if you don't know their name, just pray for them. Just say, God, I want you to, to move in them, to comfort them, to, to secure their hearts, to give them peace. Whatever it is you feel laid to, led to pray for them, pray, pray for them. Pray for the people around you.
And Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask you to be glorified. Uh, we don't invite you into this place. We know that you're already here. You actually tell us there's nowhere that we can go to escape your presence, Lord. You are in the depths. You are in the heights. You are everywhere. You are in the air that we breathe. And so, Lord, we just submit our hearts to you and ask you to teach us through your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy, perfect, and resurrected name. Amen. So, Saul. Interesting cat, this guy, Saul, right? Uh, he's got quite the story. A lot of it is somewhat legend. A lot of it is what we get from Scripture, from his own retelling of his childhood. But we also have some uh, kind of extra-biblical material that gives us a little bit of insight about Saul. Extra-biblical just means that we have some resources that are ancient that give us information about Saul that are not Scripture, right? They're, they're writings or historians or people that have written about, about Saul. But this is kind of what we know. We know that Saul grew up in this place called Tarsus. He's often referred to as Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus was a very metropolitan kind of area. It was a very large uh, city that was on a trade route. It had the largest university at the time in the world was there, uh, bigger than even that in Athens or Alexandria. It was a very educated, populated place. We know that at 13, Paul was sent from Tarsus to Jerusalem to essentially go to seminary, right? To study there at 13, he was shipped by his father from Tarsus to Jerusalem, and he studied under the name of a rabbi named, or studied under a rabbi named Gamaliel, who was perhaps the most renowned and most known scholar or rabbi in the time. He was uh, the most well-known and most renowned kind of theologian, if you will, in all of kind of kind of Jewish history and Jewish culture. And Paul went there at 13, and he studied under him for seven years. So for seven years, he essentially went to seminary from 13 through about 20, studying under Gamaliel, and he got to what people believe is about the kind of equivalent of two PhDs. So Paul, perhaps at 20, is the most educated Jew in all of Palestine. He is incredibly brilliant. He is incredibly um, well-known. He's kind of this Doogie Hauser kind of like young. That's a real old reference, by the way. So I'm amazing. I remember that show being as young as I am. But it is the thing, you know, it's the reality is, is that Paul was this young, up-and-coming kind of guy, and everybody kind of revered him. In fact, they knew that he was going to be the face or the future of, Jeru of Jewish culture in Jerusalem. That's what everybody believed, and so, and rightly so, and Paul was working his way. I mean, having studied under Gamaliel, having raised essentially there for all of his adolescent years, and at 20, right, he was essentially handed the reins in terms of leadership of that cultural community. And so Paul's a pretty big deal. And we get introduced to him for the very first time in chapter 7, or right at the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8 of Acts. And we get introduced to him in the most precarious of situations, right? Stephen, who has given this incredible speech to the Sanhedrin about the gospel and essentially who they're not and who Jesus is and how they've blown it and they're on the wrong side of God. And, and then God allows Stephen in his moments to see the heavens opened up as they're heaving these rocks upon him, stoning him outside of the city. And the first glimpse we have about Saul is that they're laying cloaks at his feet. We don't even know who this guy is. But the people that are killing Stephen are coming up to him and essentially saying, this is yours. That's what that means when you lay your outer garment at someone's feet. You're essentially saying, we're doing your will, like we submit to your authority. And even though Saul may not have said kill him, it was very obvious that he was giving his blessing and permission. <clears throat> so chapter 8 ends with this Saul, who's got all these cloaks at his feet now, giving his permission or his approval at the death of Stephen, the first martyr. Right, And that's Paul's history, his story. 
We don't really run into him again until chapter 9. And chapter 9 is where we're going to pick up today, and we're going to run through the whole story, and then I'm going to point out a few things that I think we need to, to live with and walk away with. But this is Saul's conversion. This is how his life begins to change. Hopefully it's familiar. Um, if you haven't, then it's a fascinating story. But let's listen to this. This is Acts chapter 9, and we'll go down one through, uh, we'll, read, we'll read the whole thing. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, for a man named Tarsus, a man from Tarsus named Saul is there, and he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come to and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority of the chief priests to arrest all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and to their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house, entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, sent me that you may see again, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, it's a pretty famous story because we got to know the backstory of Paul and his encounter with Christ that leads him to become the man that we know him as in terms of his propagation of the gospel and the missionary journeys and the writing of all these amazing letters to the churches that he planted. I mean, his impact on Christendom is unheralded, right? Like most of us are believers because God has used Saul, Paul, in some way, scripture-wise, to give us the gospel. He becomes the instrument of which the gospel is propagated to the entire world. And it's a fascinating story because as they lay their cloaks and as Saul is giving the approval at the death of Stephen, Acts tells us that an entire persecution broke out against all believers in that very moment. And the leaders scattered the Jewish Christians all over the known area. They took a lot of the leaders to Samaria. That's where Philip ended up. A lot of them were scattered so they could decentralize Christianity, so that there was no groundswell of movement. A lot of times what would happen is if you martyred someone who was a big deal, the people would rise up and that would become a strengthening. Well, the Jewish leaders knew this, and so in order to decentralize that, they took all the leaders and they scattered them around the Judean countryside so that they couldn't mobilize, right? They don't have social media. They can't call each other. In order to get together, you got to physically walk or write a letter or whatever it was. It was really hard to do, and so a lot of times they would just scatter the leadership to try and decentralize the movement, and the people would be like, yeah, it's not worth it. And so that's what they did. And Saul was sort of heading this up, and he began this movement of persecution by beginning to arrest these believers. Because they could arrest believers in Christ because Jesus claimed to be God. And if you put your hope and faith in Christ, essentially that was blasphemy and was punishable by death, which is why Stephen died. 
Remember, Stephen didn't die because he did anything wrong. He died because he proclaimed that Jesus was God. It's blasphemous, right? And that's why they put him to death. It's because he was blaspheming against God, which was actually punishable by death in Jewish law. So Paul, knowing this, wants to eradicate these believers. And so he goes to the high priest and he says, listen, I'm your man. I'm the guy. You want to get rid of these people that are causing our way of life a lot of trouble. Like they are costing our system and who we are. Let me get rid of them for you. I'll do this. And Paul also knows that if he does this, he is going to be seen by all the religious leaders and his colleagues as the man. Like a pipeline into becoming a, a hierarchy member, a high priest, or even something up in the Sanhedrin circle where people look to him and just say, you are it. And he knows if he's the one that squashes this or squelches this movement called the way, the Christianity, that he would be heralded. And so he puts himself on this mission, a misguided mission, if you will, but a mission nonetheless. And he goes to the high priest and he says, I need your authority. I mean, I could do this by myself, but most people won't submit to that. But if I get a letter from the high priests, then they'll know. And so they say, sure, we don't want to do it, but we'd love for you to do it. Because the high priests were as fearful of the people as anything else. They didn't want an uprising either. And so they said, well, sure, this makes total sense. We'll put it on this guy, Saul, who has got the authority and the power. And if it doesn't work, it's on him, not on us. Like, let's, let's give him this letter. So they write this letter, whatever it says, essentially saying, Paul is working for us. He has all authority of the Jewish ruling council. He has the right to arrest you. That's basically what it said. And so that's what Paul does. He gathers up a bunch of guys, and they begin to go door to door. Well, we pick up in Acts chapter 9. He's going to a city called Damascus. And Damascus is a really strategic city in the area because it's an oasis in the desert. Two rivers actually flow to kind of make this giant oasis. You can actually see the remnants today. You can go there, and you can see this sort of Roman colonnades that line the streets. It was a really important trade city. And it would go all the way from Persia, all the way through Asia Minor, and the reason it was so important is because it was a strategic place for people to come through the desert, water their animals, and move on. And when trade ports like that happened, information spread. And so Damascus was going to be a key city for the propagation of Christianity. If Christianity was established in Damascus, then as people came in from Persia or Asia Minor or wherever, they would hear the gospel and they would take it out with them. And so it would become this sort of launching place for the gospel. Paul knew that. And so Paul decides one of his first missions that he's going to go to Damascus and he's going to squash Christianity there. Because if he doesn't, Christianity has the opportunity to escape, to get out, to be made known to the world. Paul won't have it. So he decides he's going to start essentially in Damascus. And so he gets this group of guys together, armed with a letter from the high priest, and they're on their way to Damascus. They're going to stop Christianity. And the text tells us that while they're on their way, this light from heaven kind of flashes and Paul's knocked to the ground. He later describes it to King Agrippa, like in chapter 26. He says, it was a light brighter than the sun that knocked me to the ground. So this is no like mere flash. This is some giant light from heaven that, that flashes all around enough where Paul falls to the ground and, and Jesus speaks to him out of this light, essentially saying, Saul, why do you persecute me? Which is fascinating that Jesus associates the persecution of the church with himself, right? Because Paul wasn't really going around persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church, but the church is Christ's bride, and so there's a huge sermon wrapped up in there. But the idea is, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Right? And, and Saul's like, who, who are you? He says, it's just it's me, Jesus, who you are persecuting. He said, listen, I've got some instructions. I want you to get up. I want you to go into Damascus, and I want you to wait, and I'll tell you what you're going to do. 
So it says that Paul stands up and all the people that were with him, they heard the noise, but they didn't see anyone. They didn't see or encounter the same flash of light or it didn't affect him in the same way. When Saul gets up, he's literally blind. Can't see a thing. And so his companions take him by the hand and they lead him down to Damascus, right? Sort of this reversal of power that's incredible where Paul's the one that's doing the leading and he's doing the charging and he has the vision and the foresight and God renders him blind and now people are leading him by the hand, right? Sort of this great reversal of power, if you will. But they lead Paul or Saul into Damascus where he's just called to wait blind. It says for three days he just was there blind, didn't eat or drink. So Paul's story somewhat ends there, and we're introduced to this new character named Ananias. So we know there's a disciple in Damascus. Now, so Christianity is obviously beginning to take some roots there. There's a disciple named Ananias who we know nothing about. In fact, we only hear Ananias' name one other time in Scripture, and it's the retelling of this exact same story. That's it. That's all we know about him. But we know he's a disciple. We know he lives in Damascus. And then we know that Jesus shows up to him in a vision and says, Ananias, listen, I've got something I want you to do. And Ananias says, yes, Lord. He says, I want you to go down Straight Street, which was actually the name of the street because it was straight to the middle of town, right? They were genius with their wording, but it literally ran the middle of town. When you go to this house on Straight Street, this guy has it there, and there's a man named Saul from Tarsus who's there, and he's praying. And I want you to go there. I want you to lay hands on him and restore his sight. He knows you're coming, by the way, because I'm going to appear to him in a vision. And then we have this incredible interaction where Ananias goes, Lord, um, don't really, really know how to say this or bring this up, but I've heard a lot about this guy. You, you may not have, but I have. I've heard a lot about him. Uh, he's got a letter from the high priests, and he's actually going around and persecuting and arresting Christians. So if you, you, that's, you want me to go there. And so the Lord replies, uh, go. I'm fully aware. Go. He knows you're coming and lay your hands upon him. And so Ananias, without any sort of further argument, just says, all right. And he goes down to Judas's house on Straight Street, and he finds Saul there, just as God had said. And he walks in, and he says, Brother Saul, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me. And he sent me to restore your sight, to lay my hands upon you, and to baptize you and give you the Holy Spirit. But you got to think about this interaction for a moment, and we won't pay too much attention to it today because we're going to get to something else, but... This is, this is Saul, who's probably arrested at this point in time, two dozen, three dozen, four dozen believers. Some may have been related, or Ananias may have known some of them. He was actually there at the death of the stoning, the horrific murder of Stephen. Now, when Paul arrests a Christian, they go to Jerusalem. It's not like they're going to get a ticket or a fine. They're facing trial for their life. These people are going to die. So to be arrested was actually the beginning point of a death sentence. It wasn't like, hey, go get your ticket, pay your fine, they're going to release you. This was essentially a man who was signing Ananias' brothers and sisters to death. And yet Ananias walks into this room and basically says, Brother Saul, before Saul ever has a chance to reply, respond, say he's sorry, anything, he just says Brother Saul, which is not a light title, by the way. Jesus has sent me. He appeared to you. You know who he is. And the incredible thing in all that is that when Ananias lays his hands on him, right, says that something like scales 
falls, something physical falls from Saul's eyes. The Greek word there actually is the same word that's used to talk about fish scales or eggshells or the rinds of fruit. So something that's hard or kept like a protection, if you will, is on Saul's eyes. And when Ananias places his hands on him, these things, whatever it is, they fall off. He gets his sight. He is baptized and he eats and he takes some water. And there is so much wrapped up in what is not being said in those verses that I'm dying to know what happens. Like, how does that transpire? How do we go from I'm arresting believers to go ahead and baptize me? Like, what's the conversation? What's happening there? But nonetheless, God leaves all that out to get to this point. Ananias places his hands on him, scales fall. Paul's lives is radically changed. He can see, takes some food, he's baptized, and he receives the Holy Spirit. And it is just, from there on, everything changes, right? We could spend weeks. In fact, when we did the Acts back in 2015, I went back and looked. We spent like four weeks in a lot of these texts, but... I'm jamming everything together because I want you to see a couple things this morning. I want you to see that Paul and Ananias both had plans for their life, right? Like Paul's was pretty clear. Paul's was actually really easy to see. Paul's plan was first and foremost about himself. So Saul's plan was really about Saul. He wanted to do his will to engage the world the way he wanted to engage it, and he wanted to do it in a way that would elevate himself, He was on a mission, misguided as it was. It was a mission. Paul's plan was really about him. He wanted the world to know who he was, and he wanted to do it his way, all right? And so he thought at the moment that he was doing the right thing. At least he talked himself into believing that, even whatever the cost was, as dramatic as it was, killing his own kind of ethnic people, if you will. He was a Jew, and they were Jews, and he had them killed and arrested. It was worth it to him because he felt like his mission was right, and it really elevated himself, right? And, and so while you and I are, are obviously very different, we, we're very selfish in our missions as well, right? We want to propagate ourselves. We want to put ourselves out. We want people to think the best of us. We, we always want them to see that we're this and not that. And we, we just we want to be liked by people. And, and Paul's in a lot of that same category. He's just really elevating himself, right? Everything was just about him. It was his plan. And then we get to Ananias, who also has a plan for his life, although very different Ananias' plan is very clear, right? Like, I'm doing fine living my Christian life. Like, I'm in Damascus. I'm a disciple. I've given my life to the Lord, and, and things are going how I want them to go, essentially. And then Jesus shows up in a vision and says, I want you to go, and I want you to touch the man who's killing people. Like, it's one thing to stand outside his house and be like, hey, Saul, Jesus said, you're going to see you again. All right, talk to you later, man, and then like leave. But Paul perhaps is the most dangerous person in all of Judea right now. He has a letter from the high priest to put you to death. And Jesus says to Ananias, go and touch him. Now, does Jesus need Ananias? Nope. Jesus could blink and the scales fall off of Saul's eyes. He does not need Ananias. But Ananias has got a plan for himself And Jesus kind of interrupts it a little bit. And so Ananias voices his kind of struggles with God's plan. And he's not disobedient per se. Ananias just feels like he knows a little bit more than God may know. Right? So Ananias' plan, kind of like Paul's plan, really revolves around Ananias. It's saying, I hear what you're saying, God, but I'm not sure you really know. And Ananias is not disobedient. He's not like, I'm not going. You're to drag me kicking and screaming. He just says, 
objection. Objection, Lord. Um, if I touch this man, he may kill me. And not just that, he's killed a lot of other people. And just want to make sure you know. And God's like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Wrong guy, sorry. No, God's like, I fully know what I'm doing. So we oftentimes look at Saul and, and these guys like Ananias and we think they're really different. Like Saul's this terrible, horrible guy and Ananias is this great guy. And the truth is they're both just misguided in their own way following their own desires, right? One's not totally different than the other outside of the murder thing, right? But really, they're just pursuing themselves. Ananias is the same way. He just knows a little more than God may know. Which, of course, if you really look at us, are we really all that different? God calls us to things and we say, well, when this happens, then I'll go. Or, God, if you iron this thing out, then I'll know it's really from you. Or, let me pray about it some more. God's like, I showed up in a vision, I told you to go. Why do you need to pray more about it or ask your friends? Like, I literally am your God. I know exactly what I'm doing. You don't need to gather the universe to tell you what you already know I've told you. But God's gracious and good and all these kind of things. But we always chase our own, right? So both Ananias and Saul had plans. And their plans revolved around themselves. But then, in both of their plans, God shows up in a ridiculous and unexpected way, interrupts their plans, and calls them to something. Now think about how different these guys are, right? You will be hard-pressed to find, there are a couple of other instances, you would be hard-pressed to find two more opposite people in a story that are interacting for God's incredible glory in all of Scripture than Ananias and Saul, right? Saul, the, the high, going to be probably one day the high priest, headed into all the sort of accolades that Jewish kind of life will give you when you're a religious leader. You've got letters from the high priest. Everybody's afraid of you, like powers at your fingertips. You're literally putting Christians to death. And we know you. You are super famous. Like Paul is super famous, right? Like if you've picked up a Bible, you know who Paul is. He goes on to write two-thirds of the New Testament and to be the most important person outside of Jesus in all of Christian history. He's a big deal. And then you've got Ananias. Who? We don't even hear about him again. The only other time we hear his name is because the same story gets retold. He's unassuming. He's just some guy living in a village in Damascus. They're polar opposites. So whose call is more important, right? Well, of course, we first lean to Saul. We're like, well, that's the big one, right? Like if Saul doesn't, then none of this happens or whatever. And we tend to think that Saul's kind of movement or call or interruption by the Lord is this wonderful, giant, important thing, and it is. But is it more important than Ananias's? See, God told Ananias that Saul was going to be the chosen instrument. He is my chosen vessel, chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. That's what he called him. He said, he is my chosen vessel to do this. So who was God's chosen vessel to go to the most dangerous man in Judea at the time? It was Ananias. So whose call is more important, Paul's to take the gospel to the Gentiles or Ananias to take the gospel to Paul? It's a fascinating question, right? Because God doesn't need either of them. But God interrupts both of their plans with his call that are intricately tied to what God is doing in the world. 
And he interrupts both of their plans with very distinct calls that have very specific details. And I find this story incredible because most of us look at our own lives and we think, I'm pretty insignificant. Like, I see so-and-so and they're doing all these great things or this pastor's doing this or this person's writing books or look at this blog or look at what all they're doing and all the reach they have and all those kind of things. And we equate success to what we can see. Right? Sort of the, the mentality of the influencer now that we're dealing in social media world. Like they're important because they have a voice that reaches so many, right? It's easy to get there. But I find Ananias' story to be really fascinating. Because God asks Ananias to do something that is so contrary to Ananias' safety, so uncertain in its outcome, but yet so utterly important to the distribution of the gospel and then be forgotten, essentially forgotten. Yet that interruption carries perhaps as much weight as Paul himself, right, in that moment. So as I think about these things, and I begin to think about our calls and all those kind of things, and we think about the fact that, yeah, you know, we listen to someone's story and their testimony, and they've gone through these, or they've been involved with drugs, or they were in this gang, or they were doing this, or they worked for the Russian mob, or I don't know, I'd like to meet that guy, but they're whatever, Right? And then there's, here's me, I was raised here and I did this and yeah, I stopped going to church for like three months and it was a rough time and I drank a little bit at 17 and you know, here I am. And we think our story is somewhat insignificant. But the truth is, God has orchestrated all of these movements for his grand and beautiful plan and that your call by God is as significant as God's call to someone else because he is moving and drawing and spinning this plan of his and all these people that, are, that he is using are intricately connected and important, and valuable, and viable. Everyone plays a passionate role, and God calls us. And part of that calling is trusting that that plan, how insignificant as it may seem, or how massive as it may seem, is believing that God is who he says he is. It may not seem like much, but God, you're calling me to talk to my neighbor about Jesus. I may not stand on a stage and preach in front of nine million, but I may take the gospel to my neighbor, and that may be the deep call that I have, or to be forgiving to the way that I respond to my family who have been so brutal to me. I may be the picture of the gospel in their lives. It's not an insignificant call. No call by the Lord is insignificant. They're all valuable and they're all vital. But we'd be remiss if we got to the end of the story and we didn't look at the last little piece here, which I find incredibly important, which is God blinds, but God also restores. So there's something really powerful here in what Paul do, or what God does in Paul's life. God actually blinds him. He physically puts something upon his eyes and causes him this suffering, allows him to walk through it for three days where Saul has no idea if he's going to have his sight back. He doesn't know. He doesn't know what God is doing. But God blinds him for a very specific purpose and he tells that purpose to Ananias. He said, I am going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, that's not a call about punishment. It's a call about preparation. See, God had orchestrated this incredible plan. And he was using Saul in the middle of it. And Saul was going to have to walk through some incredibly difficult things. He was going to go everything from beaten and abused and put on trial and shipwrecked and bitten by snakes, flogged. Like, if you remember Saul's story, it's incredible. And he is going to suffer for the gospel. 
And for this little inkling of time, God is going to prepare Saul. And so he's using these moments of suffering to draw Saul into a relationship with him. And so God blinds him, but never leaves him. Right? God allows him to suffer, but never forsakes him. God allows him to walk through these difficult times of not eating, not drinking, just essentially praying, right? He's not even really a believer at this point in time. He's just praying to, the, praying to God, saying, what is happening to me? I'm blind. And he allows him this suffering. This, it's not the only time we see God do this in Scripture. God does it all the time. Remember the story, the guys on the road to Emmaus, they're walking, their hearts are downcast. Cleopas stops, his heart is broken. Jesus is walking with them, and they're kept from recognizing Jesus. And Jesus says, what's going on? They say, our hearts are so downcast. Their faces were downcast within them. And he says, haven't you heard? Like everything we hope for is gone. And Jesus, who is the answer to all their hopes, doesn't tell them that it's him. He says they're kept from recognizing him, and he walks with them while they're sad and broken and suffering. And at the right time, at the right moment, he reveals himself and they're overwhelmingly filled with joy. But for those hours of walking those nine miles, right, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, they walk in suffering with Christ. And Saul, while he may feel alone, suffering in blindness, right, he's not forsaken. And the reason this is so vitally important is that oftentimes we think our suffering and our hurt or the struggles that we walk through, that somehow we're alone or that it's God's correction or punishment. And sometimes that may be true in terms of God's correction, but it's never alone. God allows us to walk through suffering. God allows us to go through the difficulties in life because he is interrupting our lives for his call and he is always going to do what he does at the end of the story. He's going to restore it's God's redemptive nature. He's going to use it in some great and powerful, amazing way for his glory. Now, he gives Saul his eyesight back. Sometimes the suffering doesn't, doesn't fix whatever was broken, but God uses it to strengthen us for whatever is next. Oftentimes the hurt or struggling in our life is God using it to prepare us to trust him more, to walk with him. The suffering is never, ever empty. It's one of the great parts that we learned in Hebrews that we never suffer alone, that we have a God who suffered alongside, that Jesus suffered, he knows what our suffering's like and he's promises never to leave us, which means as you're walking through these things, right, they're not empty. God is using all things for his incredible glory and his incredible movement and so your blindness, your suffering, your struggle is not in vain. God will use all of those moments for something great. Do I know what they are? I do not. Do I know when they'll come about? I do not. Do I know how it's going to play out? I don't. But I trust what I see in Scripture, which is God blinds and God restores. And so you may be walking through the most difficult time in your life, and you can trust that God will do something great for his glory. And that may not always mean you're going to see again. It may not always mean that this thing's going to happen the way that you want it to. But it means that God is always at work. God will never call you into something, right, that he is not perfectly willing to walk with you through. God was not calling Ananias into a dangerous situation for the sake of danger. He knew very clearly what was going to unfold. And as dangerous as it was to Ananias, it was part of God's redemptive and amazing plan. Now, I don't know how Saul 
would deal with and would reconcile the challenging in his life of going from a murderer essentially to a follower of Christ. And God obviously works in his life. But the suffering and the total need to trust in the Lord was intentional. Because there were going to be moments in Saul's life where he was going to have to draw on the fact that, hey, I was blind on the road one day. And I thought I was alone and God showed up in my life and he changed my trajectory. And so all those things that I've done, they don't own me anymore. I have a different story. And Ananias recalls his same story. God called me into something incredibly crazy and dangerous. But you see, Saul, I I laid my hands on him and prayed for him and God did something incredible. You don't think Ananias told that story a thousand times of what God did? We have plans for our lives and they usually revolve around ourselves. We've got to get out of that mentality. God oftentimes interrupts those plans with a great call, a call that we're called to trust, a call that doesn't always make sense. Sometimes that call is to walk across the room and lay our hands on somebody and pray for them. Sometimes that call is to forgiveness. Sometimes that call is something incredibly radical. Leave this job, leave this city, leave this place, whatever. Go to the place that I will show you and wait for me there. God speaks into our lives. He's very much a God who still calls today. And in the middle of that call, we are called to trust him. But remember that suffering is not always, well, it's never actually in vain. And it's not always an indication that God is not doing something great. We all walk through it. Brandon says this all the time. Nobody gets through this life unscathed. Life is hard. We're going to run into bumps. The enemy's going to try and dissuade. The enemy's going to try and interrupt. Suffering sometimes comes at his hands. Sometimes it comes under the protection of the Lord. Sometimes the things we don't want to walk through are the very things we need to. Sometimes the things that we walk through we can't explain. But we always can trust Jesus, the author right, and provider of life, author and giver of life. So this morning, as we kind of close our time in worship, my heart really out of all this is this. Get out of your own way. Quit dictating your plan around yourself. This whole thing does not revolve around you. God, where are you and what do you want to do? Let God interrupt your plans. Let God mess them up. Maybe you spent 20 years creating a system for your life. Let God break it in half. Let him show you what he wants to do. Be open to the crazy things like go and spend time with Saul or to get up and go into the city and just wait on me. You don't have to have everything figured out to follow the Lord. Oftentimes he gives an instruction and calls us to wait, an instruction and calls us to wait. He did not give Saul the plan. It would have been really easy for him to go, Saul, here's the deal. It's me, Jesus. I'm gonna blind you for a little while, but it's gonna work out just fine. Don't worry, you're gonna get your sight back. And then let me tell you what's gonna happen. We're gonna go all over the world. And one day Trump Prater's gonna come to know Christ because of you some 2,000 years later. So tough it up. Paul's like, ah, I got that. I love that guy, Trevor. He's going to be awesome. No. He just says, go to Judas' house and just wait. Sometimes God's call is just that. Just wait. Next instruction. What do you want me to do? Let him interrupt your life with his plans. Don't demand like Ananias that you have it all figured out and God doesn't. God knows, literally, as we just sang, the beginning and the end. He is those things. Why are we arguing with the God who made all things? As if he himself doesn't know, right? Just say, okay, I'm in. I'm afraid, but I trust you, and I'll let you take that from me. And then remember, in the midst of all of it, right, that suffering is a part of our walk with Christ. It just is. The world is going to want to beat you down. 
Sometimes suffering, God allows it so that he can teach us, encourage us, prepare us for what's to come. Or at times, just be able to retell our story like Ananias. Or like Saul, the blindness was a preparation for what was to come. And without it, I may not have fully trusted the Lord. And then Paul retells this story to King Agrippa. Man, it's it's remarkable. Trust the plans. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your incredible movement, the promise that comes in Scripture, the reality that we often make our own plans and you love to interrupt those plans with very uncertain things, but that you are a God who always moves, always leads, always sustains. You are a God who always is moving in this world for this incredible, beautiful, redemptive picture. We're called to trust you. And when we do, we see the remarkable nature of your character. When we trust you, Lord, you never disappoint. You never fail. You always restore. Though we may fall blind, though we may suffer at times, though we may have things that happen that we can't explain, we may have hurts and bruises and be battered in this world, we may wrestle through difficult relationships or financial distress, We may struggle at times with our own health or with the health of the people around us. We may not have all the answers. But we can trust that in all things you are working for the good of those whom you love and who you call and who are part of your plan. And so, Lord, we trust that truth. We trust, God, that our call, whether it's Saul to change the world or Ananias to change Saul, they're equally valuable in the kingdom of God. And so therefore, Lord, if you call us to walk across the room or across the globe, we will go. We will trust your call. Interrupt our plans and teach us to follow you. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning, giving God all that we have for his glory. my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet my Savior on that cursed tree his body
Let's give the Lord a hand this morning. And let's give Carson a hand for leading us in worship this morning and thank, thank him for doing that. Remember, as we walk out of here, we are empowered as followers of Christ by the Holy Spirit to literally lay our plans down, to get ourselves out of the way, to surrender our hearts to the risen King. Let him interrupt your life. He is the God of the universe. He knows all. He knows what he's doing from the beginning to the end. Allow him to interrupt. Release those plans to him. Trust him. Believe that he is God, that he blinds, but he also restores. Trust in his hand and be one that follows him. Go in peace.